Well, hi, I'm Pete. And I'm Maureen. And it's time once again for the Mixing It Up with Pete and Maureen podcast. We come to you every week. And it's the podcast where my wife of 43 years and I sit down in our kitchen at the microphones and we talk about whatever we pull off the top of our heads. And sometimes out of somewhere else. But we always try to make it fun and entertaining. And this week on Mixing It Up with Pete and Maureen, well, we've got a good one for you. We're going to be talking about television game shows. And our guest today is a very familiar voice to you if you listen to uh, WJRZ or if you listen to uh, The Peak in the Afternoon up in White Plains, or if you listen to Star 99.1, you know his voice. He's been guiding you uh, to and from work in the afternoon for many years. Uh, He is also an amateur meteorologist, and I'd say that only amateur in that he's not paid, because his forecasts, i got to tell you, in the many years that I've been working with him, uh, they're pretty damn accurate and pretty i don't think that they're any worse than anything that you'll see on tv in new york he's really good and he is a co-worker of mine at iheart media at total traffic he is a traffic reporter much like myself and so we welcome mike barker to mixing it up with pete and maureen i gotta say it's a pleasure to be here pete and maureen thank you for having me thank you for coming we've been talking about doing this for a long time we were supposed to do it back in march we were but then then we sold the old yeah. house and we got involved in the move here, and we finally have things starting to settle down, so we're able to do the show. So. And then we had COVID, of course. Yeah. And, of course. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, here thank, we are. And thank you for coming out. <laughs> My pleasure, Pete. Thank you. So the question, Mike, is um, why game shows? What was, what was the thing that got you hooked, that got you interested in the game show genre? It was something that was on in my house. Um, it was back in the 80s when I was growing up. Um, You know, I would come home from school or during winter break or during snow days. It was a constant block from 10 o'clock in the morning. It was the $25,000 pyramid. 10.30 was press your luck. 11 o'clock, it was the price is right. And I just became obsessed with those shows. I mean, it's literally an obsession. And I watched every single show every single day. And it became really hard at some point because... You know, back then, VCRs were just coming into existence. Mm. And it's not like today where, okay, you can be watching something and then you can record something else on a DVR. You actually had to put a video cassette in and only one thing could be recording at a time. So we had a lot of family feuds, no pun intended, (laughs) about uh, what was going to be recorded. So eventually I said, okay, I can do it out the pyramid somewhat, but I can't miss the prices, right? I can't miss pressure lock. So that's what was recorded. And then my mom watched her soaps later in the day. And, you know, we were all happy. So how old were you back in, in, that, uh, in that time? I was, I want to say 10, okay. 11. Yeah. yeah. And it was really, uh, The Price is Right is what, what drew me in, really. I mean, uh, Bob Barker is, is legitimately an idol of mine. And no relation Absolutely to you. no relation. Later on, when we talk about behind the scenes prices, right, I'll tell you a funny story that Bob actually physically told me. Um, but no, no relation officially. I looked it up. I did all kinds of different little research. No, but Bob actually says different. Bob, well, I'll tell you the story now. Okay. When, I met, when I met Bob, which was an amazing, an amazing uh, experience, mm-hmm. um, I was very fortunate through a very tragic event to become friends with a very important person at CBS, the senior vice president of casting at CBS all these years was the best friend of my grandfather's well my best he was his son was the best friend of my grandfather and 
when my grandfather passed away in 2001, Bal, who was his name, and his son Peter, who was the executive, was at my grandfather's house. And we just started talking. And through that connection, through a tragedy in my life, hmm. I met this gentleman, and he said, whenever you're out in LA, let me know, and I'll hook you up with the grand VIP tour. And uh, he hooked me up with a backstage look at the prices right. And when I tell you, it was amazing to see that show. It was amazing. So you've really been behind the real nuts and bolts I of have. the show. I have. It started off as an obsession to try to be on the show, a contestant. I flew out there probably five, six years in a row when I was a lot younger. And I didn't mind sitting in an airplane seat for six hours. Mm. Um, and I would go to every single taping of the week. Um, they did two tapings on Monday back then. They did one taping Tuesday, one taping Wednesday, one taping Thursday. I was at all of them. And I was oh for like 24. I never actually made the show. But the way they do it is they select 12 people. The producer back then was Philip Wayne Rossi. And Stan Blitz would come out and interview the contestants, potential contestants. He would just ask you very simple questions. He would come out and say, I'll be, I'll be Stan, you be a potential contestant. I'll be like, what's your name? Pete. Where are you coming from today? New Jersey. What do you do? I'm a broadcaster. Why are you here? Because I want to win a big prize. That's it? You don't like the show? I love the show. Okay. Well, what, you have something good to say about the show? I watch it every day. Okay. But it was, it was, it was simple questions like that. Yeah. But from those simple questions, he, would, he and somebody else would select 12 potential contestants. They only need nine. One time, I made the 12, but I didn't make the final, the cut, final cut for the nine. So at the end of the show, Nikki Ziering, who was a model at the end of the show, and Rod Roddy, who was the, the announcer of the show right. for all those years, and goes, if we call your name right now, stick around. We have a special prize for you. And Nikki Ziering called my name. And I later found out the reason why was because they selected me, but I didn't make the final cut to be a contestant. The shirt that got me on that, into that position was, I am the second most famous Barker. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> and on the back it said, Next to you, Bob. Oh. <laughs> now, I didn't get on the show, but yeah. I was darn close. Yeah. yeah. That and, would do it. Yeah, and I got a $100 door prize um, for, from CBS for being selected but not officially on the show. Wow, that's a great story. Yeah, and that was the contestant end of things. And then my grandfather died in May of 2001. I met Peter, and Peter hooked me up with VIP everything. And then from that access, I actually became good friends with Roger Dopkowitz who is the longtime producer of The Price is Right. You know, Bob Barker would mention him all the time in the show. Roger, mm -hmm. when's the last time that happened? That, this is the second time, right? It's the only second time that's happened in this game. And I became friends with Roger, and Roger gave me even more access to the show. And I actually got to sit there, and in the control room, I watched the show be recorded. Now you're making me envious. Yeah. <laughs> I've told you some of these stories. Because you know I, I, I love television directing. <laughs> yeah. And oh. if I didn't do what I do now, I probably would have been a director. Yeah, no, it, it, it was great. The, the smoothness of the show is unbelievable. Yeah. They start the show at, at 1.15 on the button. It finishes, no joke, Pete, at 2.15. Maureen, it's, 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 like, it's run like a machine. So they're doing it in real time, Absolutely basically. real time. It is done live to tape. Bob Barker had the most amazing ability to bring that show in on time. He would always, in between shows, the, one of the guys would come out and say, he'd show him where you are on the clock. He would make a mental notation of it, and he knew exactly how mm. long he had with each contestant with each game. And depending on the games that they played, like some of the games uh, require a lot longer time. 
like Golden Road, for example, Triple Play, Three Strikes. Those are longer games, so they're usually put in the first half of the show so they, don't, so they can get the games in rather than have to force their way through it. But Bob had the amazing ability to get the show in on time without any sort of clock. He, just, he was just the best. Mm-hmm. And um, when I actually first met Bob, I was nervous, to say the least. Roger said to me, this is what I want you to do. This is how you meet Bob. Stand right here. Bob says, help control the pet population. Have your pet spayed or neutered. Goodbye, everybody. He does the end of the show. He comes out. He says goodbye to the audience. He says, I just want to thank you for coming. I hope you enjoy your visit to The Price is Right. And then the audience applauds. He walks away. And then all of a sudden, I'd seen him many times in person, but he comes around the corner, and it's just me and him. Just me and him, no farther than where you are right now. And he looked at me. He looked at me. He smiled and said, he said, good afternoon. And I was like, Mr. Barker, it's a pleasure to see you. Yeah. And I have never been that nervous in my life, except the first time I met you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's not far from true, though. I mean, when I first met Pete, yeah. I mean, I've been listening to this guy. I've been listening to your husband for God only knows how long on Z100, on 1010 Wins, all the radio stations. Petey Pop. I still call him Petey Pop. A lot of people do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I was kind of nervous when I met you. But when I met Bob Barker, I, I froze. I, I would. I would I, be. I, mean, humana, humana, humana. I, I yeah. didn't get that bad, but he, would, he could not have been nicer to me. And he steps around the bend, and I see him, and, and he sits there, and he, st- he talks. And I had a present for his dog, Federico. And I, cause I was trying to, you know, not kiss up to him, but I want him to, you know, you know, be nice to me. I want to, you know, to, to have a chance to talk to him. Mm. I want a picture with him, autograph and all that stuff. And Roger had given me tips about, you know, he generally, Bob, when he finished the show, he went right to his dressing room. So you had to grab him and, you know, really quickly. So I did that and I, I brought a little present for his dog, Federico, talked to him, took a bunch of pictures with him. He couldn't have been nicer. And then the next day, I went backstage again, and I saw him, and he said, Mike, and he remembered my name from oh, yesterday. Wow. And I was like, Mr. Barker, you remember my name from yesterday? And I was like, I'm, I'm a little, little excited about that. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, and I just want to tell you, Frederico loved your Aww. gift. And, and he was like, he's like, where did you get that? And I, got, I think I got it someplace in Pasadena. I forget where it was. Um, and I, I brought Krispy Kreme donuts for the staff that day. And he goes, next time, though, one thing, make sure you leave enough donuts for me. <laughs> he said, because I didn't get any of those donuts that you apparently brought. But, you know, he got the, I got the impression that Bob is a very tough boss. Yeah. He's a perfectionist. Um, but he's a genuinely nice human being. And um, talking to him, I, I would say the first time I met him was probably a good seven, eight minute chat. Just, you know, just backstage, just behind what would be door number one if you're looking at the show. And we were just chatting, just talking about this, that, and the other thing, and he was just really genuinely looking at my, into my eyes, talking to me, and he was genuinely interested in what I had to say. And the, the whole thing came up about the shirt. I said, a couple years ago, I tried to get on the show, and I said, my last name is Barker. He goes, well, you know we're related. I was like, we are? And he says, yeah, we're related. I was like, well, I've done research, you know, because everybody in the school would always say, are you related to Pop? I was like, no. He's like, apparently there was two Barkers that came over from England, and then they had they reproduced and here we are. But he says that in some long distance way, every Barker is related. So that's what Bob says and who am I to judge? I was say, <laughs> who am I to argue I about Barker? Say, Bob, Bob says it, I believe it and that's, that's right. that. That's right, but uh, it, it, 
it was just great. I mean, the, the show is amazing to see live. And the difference between the Bob Barker show and the Drew Carey show, it's astronom- astronomical. Yeah. Bob Barker did it in real time. They kept the mistakes, if there were, in, some, in the show. What you saw on the tape, unless there was a legitimate error yeah. that had to be like done. Like a game doesn't work or something They like kept that, most yeah. of those in, though. I mean, when I was there, they had problems with uh, quite a few different things. And they just kept them in there. Um, Drew Carey doesn't do that. Drew Carey, you know, what would, would take an hour for Bob to do, a general taping of the prices right now takes close to two hours with Drew Carey because they stop, they start, they stop, they start. I couldn't believe the difference between, I was there last at season 35, Bob's last year, and I went again one more time the following year just to see what Drew Carey's version was like, and it, it was not even close. I mean, it was just, it, it, it just, it was not even close to what the smoothness that Bob did it with. You and I have talked about this before. Uh, I think that the feel of The Price is Right changed after Bob left. And the way that I've described it to you now, the way that they're doing the show is, it kind of strikes me as being just like a big frat party. Yeah. And I don't know if I like it. You know, Pete, I was always told by people that uh, you should like the show for the games. And if you like the games, the, the host of the show shouldn't make a difference. And I said to myself, I don't know if I believe that. And I do love the games. Yeah. But Bob Barker made the contestant the star. He didn't make himself the star. Bob didn't care about the glory. Drew Carey does. I mean, Drew Carey, it's all about I mean, he, he cares about the contestants and whether they win or not. But it's, it's a much different feel. Mm. He, he doesn't do enough to make the... Um, the moment he doesn't like when when that person many years ago in one of drew's first years got the showcase exactly right i mean he said actual retail price thirty four thousand two hundred and four dollars he hit it right on the nose and this is the way his tone of my voice was the way i'm doing it absolutely no enthusiasm bob barker would have made that a big thing like it's never happened before a historic moment on the price is right Mm. nothing from drew carey nothing Mm. Yeah, it, to me, it is a, a much different show. Yeah. Uh, they've always had great announcers. Yes. And, of course, uh, you had Johnny Olson. The best. Who I think is my favorite yeah. out of all of them. Me too. Uh, Rod Roddy, God rest him, uh, was great. Uh, you had to love those suits. <laughs> you had to love those those loud suits that, that he would bring in from, uh, from Hong Kong, wasn't it? Or Ch- Chiang Mai? I'm not sure. I don't know where they were, but they were made specifically for Rod, and he had one for 180 different shows they tape in a season, and he had one different one for every wow. single show. Wow. He was a great announcer. He must have some closet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he had a great warm-up act, too. And oh, then after Rod Roddy is, is kind of where I started to lose the show. Uh, who succeeded Rod Roddy? Rich Fields. Okay. Rich Fields, who was a meteorologist in Tampa Bay, um, and then he went to Los Angeles. And then he auditioned for the job. They had, they had many in that audition. Burton Richardson, uh, Randy West, um, all, all, and then Rich Fields did it. And did then, Gene Wood ever do it? Gene Wood did a couple shows on the primetime versions of The Price is Right, the specials that they used to do back in the late 80s. But he was never a regular host. He filled in for, I want to say, I think he filled in for Rod a couple times, or Johnny, one of the two. It, was, it, it wasn't very often. You know, Gene was more... You know, on um, password, password plus, and and Family Feud, yeah. but you know they're all a tight knit family, kind of like all of us. You know, it's like everybody knows each other in the business. Same thing with the with the with the game show announcers, 
But yeah, Rich Fields, um, who was a very, I was actually pushing for Rich to be the host of the show after Bob retired because he knew the show, he knew the audience, um, he was liked by the audience, but he never got any traction. And the funny thing is, CBS was dead set on Drew Carey from the beginning. Um, they, they went through the whole, you know, pomp and circumstance of, you know, auditioning hosts, potential hosts, but they were dead set on Drew Carey. Why? I don't know. Roger Dopkowitz once told me saying that he never, he, Drew never even came in for an audition. Meanwhile, you had people like Mario Lopez, John, o, John O'Hurley, Ryan Seacrest, all these people that actually came in and did auditions for the show. And Fremantle Media, who owned the show at the point, they wanted no part of it. They, they had their point, but CBS, who houses the show, said, no, we want Drew Carey. He was just on the power of 10. We like it. He's our guy. For some reason, I have it in my head, Mike, that Bill Evans from Channel 7 was up for that gig, too, wasn't he? Did you know anything about Dave that? Dave Price. Oh, Dave Price. Dave Price. Okay. He had a legitimate audition, and Roger actually told me it was a good audition. Um, he actually had a second audition, um, but again, he was never seriously considered. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they dragged it out. I mean, Bob did his last show on June 6, 2007. It aired on June 15, 2007. The search was on. He made the announcement in October of 06 that he was going to retire. Um, and then the Power of Ten, Drew Carey show started that summer, and they decided, absolutely, we want Drew Carey. Um, and the show actually started taping in August, when the show normally starts the new season in June taping. And then, it, which starts to air in September, so the production was pushed back a couple months. Instead of a June start date for the filming, it was in August, mid-August, and then that actually coined to mid-October before we actually started seeing Drew Carey on the show. It's interesting that you talk about going back to your youth, and the shows were like Price is Right, Press Your Luck. When Maureen and I were kids and seeing <laughs> we're TV, <old. laughs> T- I'm not that far behind T- you. I- TV. TV was in black and white, yeah. and you had to put up an antenna yeah. on the roof if you wanted to see it. But, and I remember Video Village with Monty Hall, and, Stub, and then they did a kid's version of uh, Video Village called Shenanigans, which was hosted by Stubby K. And I remember Jack Nars with, uh, I think it was called Six Keys to Treasure, and Jan Murray, Treasure Hunt. Uh, Hugh Downs concentration. Hugh Downs, yes, that, that one I know. Yeah. That one I've seen clips of, actually. They actually had game shows on television going all the way back into the experimental days in the 1930s, because as you may know, the game shows came over from radio. Right. And so they had a show uh, on TV very early in the 1930s called Spelling Bee, which is accredited as being the first TV game show. There was another show that came over from radio called Information, Please. And then there were different types of game shows where you had uh, a lot of Q&A shows, a lot of question and answer shows. Uh, Groucho Marx's You Bet Your Life. That was a radio show. And what you saw on television was actually the radio show recorded on film. And then they would edit it down to get it to the half-hour format for, for content. But that was actually the radio show. So you had these shows that were quiz shows uh, with one host and maybe one contestant or two contestants. Then you had the stunt shows, like Beat the Clock. And then you had the panel shows, which I, I think my favorite of all of the game shows are the panel shows. So when I was a kid, you had What's My Line? You had, uh, what else did we have? To Tell the Truth. I've Got a Secret. Match right. Game. Match Game. Uh, and now the, the, we have these other game shows uh, I don't even know if I would call them game shows, like Ellen DeGeneres' 
uh, Game of Games show, yeah. and there's all these crazy shows where they've got you jumping through hoops and stuff. Yeah. To me, that's not a game show. No, no, I agree. In, in fact, and to me, it even comes across as a little mean-spirited sometimes. It's it's like, uh, let's see how we can get them to mortify and embarrass themselves. And, and you know, that's that's the difference between, you know, The Price is Right and, and, and of the 80s and The Price is Right today and, and game shows like what Maureen just said. It's, it's, it's about that's what sells now. Yeah. People like that. People tune in for that kind of, you know, activity. Mm. You know, The Price is Right, though, has been, you know, Bob kept it number one. He was, he was hosting the show for 35 years. From I think the last twenty of those years, he and CBS Daytime, you know, they were the anchor of CBS Daytime's number one. They were number one longer than any network had ever been. You know, he he retired and and you know, Drew the ratings went down. He, he they brought it back up a little bit, uh, but they they definitely like you said they they cater to a different audience now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's very obvious they're seeking yeah. a, a younger demographic. No question. Did you ever see the original Prices Right? I've seen clips with Bill Cullen. With Bill yes. Cullen. Yes, I, we did. Wow, you know, I, That's a I, whole nother I game. love yeah. Bill Cullen. I love Bill Cullen. I, for me, Bill Cullen is the greatest game show host maybe ever. Debatable, because I've got other ones too that I would put up there, and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, but Bill Cullen did Prices Right, and it was basically a panel of four people, four or five people, and they would present the prize and they would bid and they would go through a few times it wasn't just okay i bid this i bid this they would go through maybe two or three sweeps and then somebody could decide if they were going to go above the bid of their predecessor or they would say i'll freeze bill and I, you would hear ding right I, yeah and this think, little snowflake they, would come on the screen i think the challenge that was frozen. that you had to go above each, each increment had to be more than the one before yeah so you you know when you got to the point where you thought you were pretty close to the price you'd freeze so that you wouldn't be forced into going over one of the games that's on the show currently and bob barker was a huge fan of it it's called that's too much yes that show that game was based on the original price is right with bill cullen the producer of the show roger got the idea based on that and goes this will be a good game to have it's a it's a car game and they show you prices and you want to go the the closest without going over and it was you know actually the first one more than the actual price and it's it was a great it was a great game it was coming from bill cohen that show was actually done live in new york city that wasn't taped like all the other that show was done live now imagine that back in the 50s doing a live show like that wow that was crazy. I remember as a youngster going to see Beat the Clock with my mom. Uh, she had ordered tickets, and Bud Collier was the MC. And uh, the show was done in New York City at, I think it was the, the Ritz Theater. And it uh, later became, a, I think they used to do the Dick Cavett show from there, and I think they, they shot the Pyramid there uh, when Dick Clark was hosting it from New York. Uh, and I remember going to see that, and I, I was hoping to meet Bud Collier when the show was over, and he'd already left. Because I remember we talked to one of the ushers after, after the show, and he said, no, as soon as he's done taping, he's out of here. That's, he's, that's he's, kind of what Bob Barker does, too. He's out the door. Yeah. And the announcer was a guy named Dirk Fredericks. And, of course, the format of Beat the Clock was you were given so many seconds to complete a stunt or a task to win money and win prizes. But I, I remember going there, and there have been a number of versions of Beat the Clock over the years, uh, including one that was hosted by the aforementioned Gene Wood, mm-hmm. who basically was an announcer, but he also hosted a few mm-hmm. shows. So what do you think it takes to make a good game show? 
I think I think a lot of it has to do with the host. I mean, I I, don't, I think the now more than ever you need a host that's that has that the it factor. Um, you know, like Ryan Seacrest, for example. Ryan Seacrest is the closest thing we have currently, in my opinion, to what those old game show hosts were. Ryan Seacrest reminds me of a modern day Dick Clark. The guy has a, a tireless work ethic. Um, he's a perfectionist when it comes to his work. And I think a lot of people, and that's everything that Drew Carey is not. Drew Carey comes into work, and he does the show, but he doesn't take part in the rehearsals. Um, you know, Honestly, you can tell when he does the show. Like you said, Barker was smooth. Yes. And Drew Carey, it's to this day, and he's been doing the show now for how many years? 2007 was his first year, so it's, I'm not good at 13 years. Yeah. yeah. And after 13 years, I still get the feeling when I'm watching Drew Carey that it's like, Okay, what do I do now? What's what's next? What what do I say? There's there's I don't see the level of involvement. No, and, and, that Bob had Roger Dobkowitz, um, Like I said, I'm friends with him now. I wasn't as good friends back when when Bob retired, but he was the producer of the show for 35 years. He also was an associate producer on Match Game with Gene Rayburn. So Roger's been around for a long time. They made drastic changes in season 36, and you know they were trying to get Drew Carey up up on all the games. You know, there's over 100 games on the prices, right? You know, when Drew took over. And Drew was like, I'll learn this one this week. I'll learn this one this week. And, and he had no desire to really learn the games at the pace they needed him to learn. And that was the reason why, instead of, you know, starting, you know, they got such a late start because Drew was busy trying to learn the games at his own pace. And he, you know, they, they catered the show to him. And it's nothing against him personally. It's just when you're replacing a legend, mm-hmm. you know, like Bob Barker, you know, when, when Drew Carey came through those doors for the first time, and I heard Richfield say, and now here is the star of The Price is Right, Drew Carey. I, I Are you sure you don't want to audition for the announcer <laughs> job there, Mike? That sounded pretty good. I mean, no. When I heard that, I mean, I don't want to say I was offended, yeah. but it's like Bob Barker was the star of The Price is Right. And then when Drew Carey came through those doors, it just did not have the same effect from day one. I stuck with the show. I still watch it once in a while. But it's not must-see TV. And I just think that the host is a big part of it. The Price is Right, for example, is it, the games are the show. The contestants are the show. But you need an MC. You need a master of ceremonies that knows what he's doing. And after all these years, like you said, Drew just doesn't... He just doesn't... Back when The Price is Right was doing Bob Barker's version, the show was taped in real time, and it was taped, you know, chronologically. Like, he would tape the show on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday... The show he just did, he could talk about the next show with the next audience because the show before is going to air the day before. Mm. So it was taped in chronological order. So Bob would be like, oh, this happened just the other day. That's three times in one week. Drew can't do that because his tapings are, and air dates are so scattered. I mean, you could tape, tape one show in one day it'll air in September. Then the, the second show they taped that day won't air until March. No idea why they do that. Yeah. It's, it's, my, it's a Mike Richards thing. Uh, Mike Richards was the EP, uh, the executive producer of uh, The Price is Right when uh, Roger uh, got let go. And he just he was also doing Let's Make a Deal at this time. You never know when the shows are going to air. I mean, it, there's no rhyme or reason for it. So it's like you can't have historic moments. You, you, you can't say, oh, that's the 47th perfect show we've had in the history of The Price is Right. You can't say that anymore because... In the, he doesn't know. He doesn't know, and, and the shows air out of order. Uh, they don't air tape to, to air. It's 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 totally totally messed up. I mean, and, and think about it. They're, they're coming up on their 10,000th episode in almost 50 years. 
And uh, with COVID, they have, they've been shut down since March, and they, they've been in reruns. You know, Jeopardy uh, and Wheel of Fortune, mm. they had a couple weeks of tapings without audiences, and Jeopardy's last original episode for this season it just aired a couple weeks ago. Um, Price is Right didn't have that luxury because they have an audience, and you can't, you can't do the show without the contestants. Let's talk about Jeopardy because you love it. Mm. I love it. Maureen loves it. We never miss Jeopardy. In fact, we tape it to make sure that we, we don't miss it. I do, too, because I'm on the, the radio during when it's on, so I, I can't miss it. And we, all of us here, are huge fans of Alex Trebek. And you've, I cannot believe the, the incredible work ethic, the professionalism of Alex Trebek. Here's the, the guy is fighting pancreatic cancer. Stage four. And... He's backstage in his dressing room between tapings, lying on the floor, writhing in pain. Yep. And he comes out for the taping, and the cameras roll, and he's Alex Trebek. Yep. And you would not know that the man is in pain, that he is suffering. And I'm telling you, there are some nights that I watch him, and I almost have tears coming out of my eyes. Yeah. When I realize what he's going through the pain that he's been in and yet he comes out and he does the show and it's like you would never know that that he was fighting for his life yeah and just the other night he won another emmy yes he did and i thought he had a great comment he said uh he's been nominated i think he said for like 32 of these over the years and he's won like maybe six six yeah and he goes and i can tell you winning is better (laughs) than losing That's a classic Alex Trebek line, though. Yeah, you know, I mean, the taping—excuse me—the taping day in Jeopardy is—it's—it's it's, it's intense. Alex, they do it all in one day. They do. Um, they tape a week's worth of shows in one day. Wow. Alex gets there at six o'clock in the morning, and this is what he does. He is a man. He's a creature of habit. This is exactly what he does for every taping day. Forty-six shows, forty-six taping days a year. He gets there at six o'clock in the morning. From six o'clock until seven thirty. He reads fan mail, he responds to fan mail, and he, um, he talks to his producers about pu- uh, public appearances and appearances on television shows and all that. From 7.30 to 9, he gets the day's shows, all the questions or the answers, um, and he think about the, each, each show. Jeopardy, double Jeopardy round, it's a total of 61 questions that he's got to go through. For each show so he goes through each and every one and sometimes he doesn't like the way they're written he'll make a check mark a notation to himself most of the time the jeopardy writers do a good job with it but he goes through every show all five shows so he's going through 300 questions and answers between 7 30 and 9 o'clock not to mention all of those pronunciations that he has to get right correct now do you know does he speak many languages or does he just learn the pronunciations for that Excuse me. Um, he does. I don't know the answer to that, but he. I know he speaks French. He does speak. Well, he's th- Canadian, so yeah. yeah I think I, I, he's he's very good at it when he when he has a when there's a French clue. He's very good at that. So I think you're right about that. But he takes great pride in making sure he doesn't have to do a voiceover after the show, like a redo on the clues, especially now because his energy level isn't as high as it once was. Like he wants to do the show and be done with it. Mm. Um, 
But after he, after he reads over the questions, and then at 9 o'clock in the morning, he goes and meets with his production staff. And they talk about the shows that are going to do. And he goes over any issues they have with the questions. Then that's from 9 until about 10.15. At 10.15, he goes to the makeup, puts his suit on. 11 o'clock is show one. They tape it in just about real time. Not quite. Not quite, but just about real time. 11.45, the first show ends. He goes, changes, 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock, show two starts. 12 to 12.45, he quick changes. The champion about that day changes. 1 o'clock, the next show. And that goes to 1.45. From 1.45 until 3 o'clock, they do lunch. Then from 3 o'clock, 3.15 to 4 o'clock is show 4 of the day. Then from 4.15 to 5 o'clock is show 5 of the day. They do that 46 times a year. That's what Bob, that's what wow. that's what Alex does. That is a marathon. It is. That is a marathon. I've been even, there. Even for someone that's not for a healthy cancer. guy. Yeah. For a healthy guy, that's a freaking marathon. I was exhausted watching it. I mean, yeah. I, I was invited as a as an invited guest. Uh, a friend of mine who went to college um, with uh, is now a contestant coordinator on the show. And a bunch of years ago, she invited me well before Alex was diagnosed with stage four um, cancer. And I sat there and I watched all five shows. The first three shows of the day is one audience. Then they take a lunch break and then they bring another audience in. And I sat for all five shows. It is exhausting to watch those, the, those people do their thing. From the camera people to Alex to the contestant coordinators. I mean, what you see on TV is the perfected product. What you see in the studio, it's pure magic. I've been to every game show you can possibly imagine. That's been around um, since I've been able to get around on my own and not have mommy and daddy bring me mm-hmm. places. I've been to Price is Right. I've been to Pyramid with Strahan. I've been to Match Game with, with Alec Baldwin. I've been, to, I've been to them all. Who wants to be a millionaire with Regis? And I've been to Jeopardy, Wheel of Fortune, all of them. Jeopardy and the Price is Right were fine oiled machines. I mean, the, the staff of those shows, it, 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 was, it, just, it, was, it was perfection. No mistakes, and it was just they were absolute professionals. Wheel of Fortune was to a certain extent too, but they they weren't quite as on the ball. Price is Right was like that. The new Price is Right, forget it. Drew Carey. I mean, they were just like they stopped and started so many mm-hmm. times. You can see the edits too, as, uh, yeah. as they say in the biz. We'll fix it in post. That's exactly what they do. <laughs> we'll fix it in post. And, and Adam Sandler, who's now the director of the Price is Right, was yeah. the stage manager back during Bob Barker's years. And Bob and Adam actually filled for the rehearsals. Adam Sandler stood in as Bob. They would do before the audience was brought in. They would go through the entire show. I mean, from 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 the entrance all the way to the showcases and everything in between. They would go through the entire show. And Adam, who's the director now, was once the, was once the stage manager. So that's moving on up. Yeah, boy. And, yeah. Th- and that's not the Adam Sandler we know, right? No, it's not the Adam Sandler. <laughs> and not nearly as nice. I'm like, <laughs> this Adam Sandler, not a very nice guy, and the price is right. The one guy in the staff that I never really got along with when I was out there. There is a video, and I think you had recommended it to me, where they took you behind the scenes on a taping of uh, the full hour yep. of The Price is Right with Drew Carey, and he's wearing a, a camera on his head. Yep. And so you're seeing everything as he is seeing it. Yep. So when he's coming out at the beginning of the show, yep. you're seeing the back of the doors yep. that he's, and it's like plywood yep. on television. Of course, you're seeing what the camera wants you to see that the painted front end and it looks great, but his version, when he's looking at it, you see these plywood doors yep. and you see these guys like pulling them open Yep, with strings. Yeah. Yep. And it's like, 
it's very unglamorous. It, it really is. And, and the amount of activity going on between the games, it's behind the behind the curtain uh, when they're moving stuff in, moving stuff out. They got to get a car in there, maybe or two cars. What you see at stage thirty-three, which is now known as the Bob Barker Studio, what you see on TV, it's very small when you're there in person, because of the fact they could move the doors back and have a bigger have a bigger stage, but they can't because of the fact they have the games all lined up and ready to go. Because when Bob was hosting the show, it was done in real time. It's not, they're not, they're not, you know, they don't care as much about time with Drew Carey's version. But it was, they had two minutes, two and a half minutes, whatever it was, to move everything, get the wheel in and out. And everything was set up backstage um, accordingly, based on what they're going to do. And I always got a kick out of saying, well, how do they, how do they get the cars onto the stage? They get six Union stagehands and push the darn thing onto the, the exact location. They don't start it up and they drive it not. in. They do not. They put it in neutral. They put the model in the car, and they push it out on the stage. It was the funniest thing. The, the, the very first show I was watching from backstage, they played Lucky 7. And they go, and they said, and here's where you're going to win. And they pushed the car out. Six people were just pushed it out there, and they gave it a good shove. Yeah. And so much that the model had to put the you know, press on the brake to stop from hitting the door, the door three. <laughs> And so, uh, that has happened, by the way. Sometimes didn't Holly Hallstrom, Holly Hallstrom and Janice both did that. Destro- crashed into the set. It. Yeah, <laughs> destroyed it. And then um, Rachel Reynolds did it as a joke on April Fool's Day um, during the Drew Carey years. Uh, she she actually went right through the door. It was intentional, though. Uh, the one thing I'll say about the Drew Carey version, they're creative with their themes. Yeah, you know they do stuff like that. Like Bob Barker is, uh, you know, he just liked to, even right till his last day. He kept the show exactly what it was because it sold and people loved it just for what it was. It wasn't broken, so no. why fix it? And he never adjusted it. Um, you know, they changed the set somewhat. Uh, and Roger had told me many years later that um, he Bob fought him on that a lot. Uh, and ultimately, Bob had the final say on everything, but he gave in on that. He changed the set slightly over the years. It went from the traditional set. They had that Hollywood mural, which lasted like one season. Then they had like the, the darker blue and like the reddish uh, set. You know, Bob fought that because he loved the original. He didn't want to change anything. Yeah. You know, uh, things have changed. And now the show is basically just uh, adjusted to 2020 and it's not 1980 anymore. It's just not. Did you ever see the uh, the opening that Alex Trebek did years ago? I don't know if it was April Fool's Day uh, when they introduced him and he came out in his shorts. Yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> he had he had the, the 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 shirt and tie and the suit jacket, and he came out in a pair of boxer shorts. Yeah. And, and that was actually, I believe, uh, on a on a, a bet from a contestant. Um, in this, the, between the at the end of the first commercial, when Alex talks to the contestants after during during the Jeopardy round, the contestants always have a bunch of different topics that that Alex could check, could talk to them about. The contestants never know which topic Alex is going to ask them about. One contestant actually said, he said, oh, I thought, you know, my wife and I always thought it would be funny if you came out one day in boxer shorts. Well, (laughs) the next show, he did that. The other night, they had the episode where they had the whole category was sports questions, and none of the contestants knew any of the answers. Oh, yeah, it's right. He said, oh, not big sports fans, are we? (laughs) And he would ask the question, and you could almost you could almost hear the crickets. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I'm surprised that in post production they didn't maybe add some crickets yeah. to that because it would have been funny. And then they get to the the last question at the bottom of the column, and Alex says, 
if somebody gets this, I will die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so again, Alex just has that, like what Bob did, Alex just has that ability to make the moment. You know, uh, Pat Sajak had it. You know, Peter Tamarkin had it. Dick Clark had it. Um, you know, they'd always like hype the things up. Like when yeah. Dick Clark was talking about the tournament, the $100,000 pyramid, the tournament, he just had a way of making it sound exciting. Um, and that's what makes a good game show host. And, um, you know, not everybody has it today. Michael Strahan, he hosts, you know, he hosts the new pyramid. And by the way, everybody asked me, like, why is the pyramid on ABC this summer? They were scheduled for production in April in New York City. COVID comes, they couldn't, they couldn't do production. Um, so Pyramid's not going to be on this summer. Press Your Luck and Celebrity Family Feud and Match Game, they were all taped in January and February. That's why we're seeing those shows. Because Pyramid did very well in the ratings for the last couple summers, but it's not on this year because of COVID. Because mm-hmm. they were scheduled and they couldn't, they couldn't get the show um, you know, before the COVID shutting down. They couldn't get the production uh, started in time. Now, this question becomes the elephant in the room, and it's something that you and I have talked about, and it's hard to talk about because we each get lumps on our throats when we think about it. Sooner or later, Alex Trebek will not be on Jeopardy because he will either decide that it's time to retire or, God forbid, he passes. Mm -hmm. Who can you see taking over that position i don't think anybody will ever fill his shoes but who do you think is the person to step into that now i know you and i have talked about this at at work and we we each have our own thoughts so but what are your thoughts you know i i I think it has to be somebody who appreciates the history of the show i think it's somebody who appreciates the show all the show means and has the the understands the history of it one person comes to mind and i know you're gonna love my answer maureen because I know you love this person. Uh-oh. I, you know, going into the greatest of all time tournament, mm-hmm. you know, Brad Rutter had never lost a match. James Holzhauer was James. I mean, he was just, he was lightning quick on everything. Yeah. Then you had Ken Jennings. Ken Jennings won 74 straight games. Remember what I just said about the production schedule of Jeopardy. Now, just think about that. They tape shows on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Five shows on Tuesday, five shows on Wednesdays every other week. So Ken Jennings had to win 10 games in essentially, well, four hours, eight hours. He won 10 games in over a two-day span. Multiply that times seven, eight, nine taping days when he won 74. The man is without a doubt the greatest of all time from a behind-the-scenes standpoint, and you see what happens uh, and, and what the contestants and the champions have to do. If, he, if, if you win your show on Monday and you come back to defend your title on Tuesday, you keep on going till Friday without a break. So it, to, to be a Jeopardy champion, it mm-hmm. is, it's incredibly, it's mentally and physically enduring. Ken Jennings would be the perfect host. That was my pick. Yeah, that Maureen has said that too, and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if he's polished enough. What I worry about is when Alex leaves the show, I don't want some network executive saying, well, we have to dumb the show down a little bit. Or we want to try and market more to a younger audience. Because Jeopardy! right now, and it has evolved. The show has evolved a lot. I'm old enough to remember Art Fleming <laughs> and Don Pardo as the announcer on the original Jeopardy! And 
the show has evolved over the decades, and Alex has the show to a point that there is a feel mm-hmm. to the show. Absolutely. There is, there is a, a, a feel that it's a game show, but it doesn't feel like a game show. Uh, it's, um, there's a level of respect. There's a, a level of uh, academia to it. it. It's almost sort of like uh, the old GE College Bowl. And here I go dating myself again. But uh, there is a definite feel to that show. And just the way the feel of The Price is Right changed when Drew Carey took over, I would hate to see the feel of Jeopardy dumbed down. And I think what Alex brings to it, too, is having done it for so long, he's now relaxed. Mm-hmm. And he can, he's, he's been putting in more of his own personality. Yeah. And throwing in little... I wouldn't really call them zingers, but, you know, like he has fun with the contestants and he can say a few things that even like when he first started, he was very formal. Absolutely. And now there's there's a certain give and take with the way he approaches the job. And that, I think, is hard to uh, emulate. And, And Maureen, that's very well said because that's what makes a good host. Because Alex, before Jeopardy, was doing classic concentration, mm-hmm. and he was a he was a comedian on that show. You know, he he was really you know you saw a different side of him than when he debuted on Jeopardy. Mm. Uh, he was really serious on one, not so serious on the other. And he, when he was doing at least for a couple seasons, he was doing both shows, and then he's evolved, like you said, from a very serious and dare I say stiff host mm-hmm. to a very loose, friendly, personable host. And he's evolved with the times, and, you know, and, and that's a credit to him. And there's not many people that can do that. And, and there's not many people, Pete, going back to the elephant in the room, mm. that I think could actually do the show. I, 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 Ken Jennings jumped out at me during the, the, ter- the Greatest of All Time tournament. Just from the interviews both before and after he had won the, the title, just how much he loves the show. I think if he became the host, I think it would be in good hands. I think so. And I think they were kind of grooming him a little bit. Um, he's on the show now called Masterminds. Yeah. And he's not constantly, but they have the, you know, the Masterminds are like uh, trivia experts. And they have him on quite often. And he's been able to kind of develop a little bit of a stage presence and an on-air personality that I think would help him immensely if he were to take Alex's place. I, I agree. And uh, you look at the other gentleman on that, the other two gentlemen on that stage, James Holzhauer, he would be a terrible host in my opinion. He doesn't have that personality. And I don't think he, he he's too egotistical. Yeah, yeah he and is. And I don't think he would relate well with the um, contestants. I, I think he would be all about him. Well, you know, my, my friend who worked with him for every, every one of his taping days, all seven of his taping days, said, you know, off camera, he was a genuinely sweet man. Uh, on, once, once you put him in that studio behind that podium, game face. He, he became, a, a, he became a, like a, like a killer. Yeah, he became a shark. You know that smelled blood in the water. You know he took it very seriously. You know, everybody said that. Oh well, he 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 threw the game to Emma that one day. He didn't throw anything. Emma came in and beat him. Period. You know, it, it's oh well. He he. That was the first time he didn't bet a, a big bet all in. He had to. He had for the first time in his 32-day run, he had two people that could potentially beat him. 
He said he calculated the odds. He did. He went with the odds, and he based his decision on those odds. Right. But yet, it did look like he threw the game. He, it, I, I, I get it. I do, too. And, and, and if you watch the show and you don't think about it, because what he actually did was he wanted to make enough money to beat Emma, but he couldn't bet too much. I'm sorry. He, he, basically, Emma controlled that match. If Emma got it right, James would lose, period. Mm -hmm. He needed Emma to miss the question, and he needed to keep enough money where he'd stay ahead of the third contestant that day in case he couldn't go all in and then have Emma miss and have the third contestant that day win. So he just, he he did it, so he wasn't thinking as much about Emma because he couldn't control Emma. Mm -hmm. Emma was going to beat him if she got the question right. It's just the way the show worked out. He had to stay away and ahead of question three. So he bit... One he uh, wagered one dollar more than a potential double bet from the third contestant, and it was the smallest bet ever for him on Final Jeopardy, which just happens to be on the day he loses. So let the conspiracy theories fly. Mm -hmm. I can see why it was, but trust me when I say he did not do it. Yep, and I I did have that feeling. Yeah, when I saw the conclusion, I was like, "Holy crap! Did he throw the game?" And yeah. I, well, and a lot of people thought that. You yeah. know, the the, the the fan sites were buzzing with that question. And, and the funny thing during James' run is when Alex announced his stage four pancreatic cancer, Alex announced it um, on March 6th, which was a taping day. How do you remember these dates, Mike? <laughs> it's just, like I told you, there's certain things I do well. Um, game shows and, and 80s music are my, um, I have like photographic memories of all these things. But, you know, beyond that, what I had for breakfast, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you all that. But um, March 6th, he made the announcement, and what he did was he made the announcement to the staff during the lunch hour. And you could tell the, the show that the, the, the post-lunch hour shows are air on Thursday and Fridays as we see them on TV. And you could tell the difference in James um, from the Wednesday show, when he didn't know about it, to the Thursday show. You could tell the energy level in that room completely died. My mm -hmm. friend said it was, you know, he was very professional about the announcement. He didn't tell the audience. The audience that day had no idea. It wasn't until, you know, the next day's audience knew when he made the announcement. Um, but he kept it very professional. But it was, James was on during a very tough time because right when this all broke with Alex Trebek's, you know, cancer diagnosis, he was on. He was on until June. And um, he started his run taping-wise in January. He finished it in mid-March. Uh, from, from an air standpoint, it went from April till June 2nd. Now, my pick to take over Jeopardy is Brooke Burns. We've talked about that. I am in love with Brooke Burns. I am too, and I, but and for has got, And I think that she's got, <laughs> she's got the poise. Uh, she is a trained actress. She's done a lot of TV movies. Uh, so she knows how to how to do this yeah. you know she's got this um uh, she's fun and boy can she read fast yeah i've seen her on uh the beat what's the beast um yeah the, the beast, chase. the chase with the beast and her other show now that she's doing masterminds and the speed with which she can read questions to me is just astounding absolutely astounding and i would love to see her get a shot at that show because well, i think she can pull it off but you know i mean and this is um you know back in the, the 80s um you know game show hosts were men it was just the way it was um now we're living in 2020 and you have elizabeth banks hosting pressure luck and doing a darn good job i might add I mean, that of all the remakes I've seen of the old shows, mm -hmm. Fresh Your Luck is the closest to what it once was with Peter Tamarkin. That show, it, it, it's, it's almost a perfect, 
it's a 2020 version of the 1984 version of Fresh Your Luck, just with, with with Elizabeth Banks hosting. I don't know if you've seen it. Yes, I have. But it, it's really good. I mean, they, they, they kept the, the, the nostalgia of the show. They kept the tradition of the show. They added modern-day-looking whammies, doing modern-day things. And, you know, so, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, in the 80s, I don't think Brooke would be considered just because, you know, of, of the, the gender. But now, I think she's got a shot. I'm coming down to my last two questions. First question, if, if you were going to be Guts and Borkland and you were going to build Mount Rushmore and you were going to construct the Mount Rushmore of TV game show hosts and you can only have four faces up there, who would those faces be? You and I may disagree on who's number one. I say it's Bob Barker. Um, I would absolutely 100% put Bob there, 100% Alex Trebek. And I would put Gene Rayburn up there. I think Gene did a lot in a time period that was very... He took a, a show that was... It was an interesting show, but he, made, he brought the best out of those contestants. I and mean, you know, Betty White, Charles Nelson Riley, Brett Summers. I always liked Gene. I thought he was terrific at what he did. The, the fourth one, I would say, would probably be, a would be between Alan Ludden and Pat Sajak... I'd probably say Pat Sajak, but Alan Ludden in his short time, well, not short time, but short time that I saw him, mm -hmm. he was really good on Password and Super Password and, and Password Plus. But I would say Pat Sajak, I would say Bob Barker, I would absolutely say uh, Alex Trebek. That's what I would say. What do you say, Maureen? Well, I'm, I'm with you on the Alex Trebek. Uh, Bob Barker, um, I, I, I guess I'd have to put him there, although... Just a personal thing. I have a real bone to pick with, with him about the whole Holly Hostrom thing. That's understandable. And uh, that kind of soured me. But taking that story away, his expertise, I, I think he, he, he could get a shot. Um, th then the other ones are kind of... A, I was thinking Richard Dawson. Um, Gene Rayburn, too. But again, he always struck me as being a little sleazy. I think that was the intent. Because I, 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 probably, yeah. but I mean, I don't, I don't know if I'd want him on Mount Rushmore. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. I, I just, I, I just think he again. It's like when I look for in a, a game show host is they just he makes the show like he didn't have he made the contestants good. He made the stars good. Mm -hmm. You know he and and you know not everybody could sit there and do that show. And I think they had the perfect toast. Alec Baldwin does pretty good with it though. And I think uh, I think Pat Sajak, I got more respect for him recently because he had some time off, and they had uh, Vanna White yeah. uh, take his place. And right. she, I mean, she did as good as she could do. But you realize the smoothness and and what he he does with with almost no effort or yeah. well, seemingly that the, no that's effort. That's the sign of real genius. The mm -hmm. sign of genius. The great ones they say make it look easy. And, make and, it look like anybody could do it. And that's the thing. Bob Barker sat in his dressing room until the opening theme of the show was playing, and then he'd come out. He'd open the door. He'd walk behind door number two. And he'd be there. I mean, he, he would get the rundown of the games from Roger Dopkowitz. He would see the games he was doing, and that's all he would do. He didn't need to go through the rehearsal because he had it right. He mm. knew the show, and he knew everything inside and out. Um, and you're right. That's what makes a good show. Not everybody can do that. I think my Mount Rushmore would be Bill Cullen, who I believe has the record for hosting a number of game shows, mm -hmm. the most 
game shows hosted by one person. Yeah, he's uh, Bill tons Cullen, of them. Tons of them. Uh, Alex Trebek. Bob Barker. And uh, I think... Boy, for me, that last slot, it's a tie between Pat Sajak and Gene Reburn. So we have the same thought process, yeah, uh, yeah. you and I. Maureen, slightly different. Um, you know, that's what, that's what makes it great. I mean, not everybody liked every show yeah. that was on. Hers, hers is Bob Barker with an asterisk. Next. Right, right. <laughs> next yeah. I mean, like I said, I mean, I was, uh, you know, we all heard the stories about Bob. And I heard stories from, you know, I became very, very good friends with one of the models who's no longer on the show. And she told me that he was an absolutely awesome person to work with. Very, very strict. But he was, you know, if you did what you're, what you're supposed to do, mm. you know, you would, you would never have a problem with him. I mean, you do, you do your job, you do it well, you'll never hear anything bad from him. He expected, he expected you to be the best. And, and some people couldn't handle that. And the whole Holly stories, you know, it's, it's, it's tragic the way it happened. Um, I don't really... But, you know, we're people. And we're all flawed individuals one way yep. or another. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, that, that will always be linked to it will. his name. Yeah, it will. But you kind of have to separate that from the job that he did on the show and making the show work as beautifully as it did for, for so many years. Mm-hmm. Okay, last question, Mike. Last question. Pat Sajak, hairpiece or not? <laughs> <laughs> I say no. Really? I say no. What, what do you say? I think he does. I, I've never gotten close enough to Pat. I mean, yeah. I've been to the show, but I never met him. I met Vanna. Never got close enough to Pat. So, I'm going to look a little closer next time. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest has been Mike Barker. And uh, Mike, I, I can't tell you what a joy this has been to do this. My pleasure, Eddie. Really, I mean, we've always talked about doing something like this. I'm glad we're actually doing it. We could actually have you back and talk about your career behind the microphone doing radio or even your your weather work. I would love to do that. So you can check. You're on Facebook, right? I am, yes. You can find Mike on Facebook, Mike Barker, and you can find Maureen and I here every week with our podcast, Mixing It Up with Pete Maureen. Mike, again, thank you again. My pleasure. My pleasure. And uh, that's it for us this week. We'll see you next week with another exciting show. Thank you all for your comments about last week's show it was a hard show for us to do but maureen and i really appreciate all of your very kind comments so until next week i'm pete and i'm maureen and that's it for now goodbye god bless you and thank you thank Thank you you for for listening. listening